St. Louis. For those of you that may not uh, be in the St. Louis area, I don't know about you, my uh, thermometer in the car uh, read out seven degrees this morning, so as, as, as I was on the way to church uh, a little bit earlier, so it looks like uh, 2018 is going to come in in a rather frigid fashion tomorrow. At any rate, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, today the lessons that we will have actually next Sunday. That's what we've been doing in this class. And next Saturday, January 6th, is the date for Epiphany. And so we will be celebrating Epiphany next weekend, both Saturday and Sunday, in our worship. So we're going to be looking at the lessons today that are assigned for the Epiphany of our Lord. Before we do that, though, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we continue to give you thanks and praise for your most precious gift to us, that of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. For the words of the angels to the shepherd, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. We thank you that he came into this world with only one main goal, to pay for our sin, voluntarily giving his life and shedding his blood on the cross. And we thank you that as we are here this morning, we know that our sins are forgiven and we have everlasting life in your sight. We ask your Holy Spirit's presence as we study your word this morning. May all that we do and say and discuss together be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, uh, maybe just a few words about Epiphany before we dive into the lessons. Epiphany, the word itself means to make known, to make something known, or to reveal something. And on Epiphany, the main focal point for that Sunday, or that observance, is the coming of the Magi. And we'll talk about who Magi are, uh, the coming of the wise men, some of you may know, or there is that old song, We Three Kings of Orient Are. And we'll be uh, kind of, unfortunately, taking apart some of the, the lore that has grown up around Epiphany with what we really do and don't know uh, about Epiphany. But Epiphany uh, then goes more than just that particular day of January 6th. Uh, it, it continues on. And, of course, what we are making known in Epiphany is Jesus Christ and who Christ is, uh, that he in fact is the Savior who has come into this world. On Epiphany, when the Magi come, we uh, give thanks to God for the fact that this now is uh, making known to Gentiles who this Savior is. Remember up until this point, uh, who, who has uh, received the word about, about the fact that a Savior was born? Okay, Jewish people, and particularly, who, who uh, in particular? Shepherds out in the fields, right? The angel appears to them, and uh, they, they receive this word, and they go and find uh, Jesus and worship him, return with great joy, and so on. Uh, but now, uh, we're going to, with Epiphany, uh, give thanks to God that Gentiles also now are going to be led to the Savior with, again, God's divine action, just like those shepherds out in the fields were. But then notice that this, even the Sundays after Epiphany, as we are in church, watch how the lessons are going to be focused on making known the fact that Jesus is the Savior, that he is, in fact, the long-promised Messiah. The very next Sunday, 
we're going to observe or, or celebrate the baptism of our Lord in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. And remember, in that baptism, how did God make it known that Jesus is his son? Recall? Holy Spirit comes down in the form of the dove, first of all, but then there is the voice of the Father who says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Right? So you can't make it known any more than that, right? The Father's voice even saying that, the Holy Spirit coming down in the form of the dove. Then you got Jesus performing his first miracle at Cana in Galilee at the wedding, changing water into wine. And that, again, making known uh, who he is. Then the season of Epiphany comes to a halt right before Ash Wednesday. So uh, I don't know if you know, but this year is going to be kind of a strange year. Ash Wednesday is on Valentine's Day this year. It's on February 14. And guess what day Easter falls on? April Fool's Day, April 1. There's, there's, I, there's got to be a sermon there somewhere. I haven't figured it out yet, but there's got to be a sermon in one of those. Anyway, uh, but it'll end. So the Epiphany will end on February 11 then, because Ash Wednesday is February 14. And it will end, it always ends with the transfiguration of our Lord. Where, remember, he takes Peter, James, and John up to the Mount of Transfiguration. His appearance changes. He glows white. He, he uh, uh, might say, is, is made known in the, in the glory of God up there on that mountain, right? So notice all of this is geared toward the same thing. It's, it's all making Christ known as the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah. And so you'll see that not only next Sunday when we talk about the coming of the Magi, but you'll see that throughout the... Uh, Sunday's following also culminating with the transfiguration. Okay? So that's the season of epiphany or the making known uh, this good news about Christ. That God is now intervening in human history in a very personal way uh, in the incarnation of his son, Jesus Christ. Alright? Alright, now that having been said, let's take a look. I want to start with a gospel lesson. Uh, I know I've got them reversed on the sheet, but let's start with the gospel lesson. This is the anchor, you might say, uh, for this Sunday. And I want to read it through first in its entirety, and then we'll go back and kind of take it apart. But Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. 
After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. All right. Let's begin by uh, talking about a few traditions that have grown up around Epiphany. And we just read the actual account of the Epiphany. So, who can tell me how many magi there were who came to uh, worship Christ? How many were there? We don't, that's exactly right. We don't know. Uh, what's the typical number that you see uh, depicted in manger scenes and so on? Three. Now, that's, why do you think traditionally, you've, if you've got a manger scene, you've got three there? Why, why would they settle on three? The three gifts, yeah. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Well, that assumes that there were only, you know, that each one brought something different and only one, you know, they all brought just one gift and so there were three. But notice nowhere in the account does it say how many there were. There might have been three. There might have been 33. We just don't know. Now, the next thing. Were the Magi ever at the manger scene? Yes. Thank, boy, we've got scholars in this class. They, it, notice... Sometime later, they went and found Mary and Joseph and the baby where? Not in the manger, but in a house. So this, we think, was at least days, if not weeks, maybe even months later. So now don't go home and throw out, you know, your manger scenes or, or, or uh, you know, kick the wise men out or something, uh, the magi out. Uh, and I, I never like to make a big deal of this because, you know, it, it's fine. But I just want to point out that... That's not the way it was, okay? We don't know how many there were. We don't know uh, exactly where Mary and Joseph were at this time, but it's clear they were in a house. They were not in a stable. Uh, you know, likely there were some family there who uh, finally took them in. Uh, we kind of wonder where they were, you know, <laughs> before that. But at any rate, they, they were not at the manger. So let's go back now. Now that we've got all this cleared up, uh, let's go back to verse 1. And notice it says, after... Well, we don't know how long. Uh, Matthew doesn't say. It just says after. After all this other stuff took place. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod. This is Herod the Great, who was by the Roman Senate in 40 uh, B.C. was designated the quote-unquote king of Judea. Now, Herod is known for a lot of things. Number one, we'll start on the positive side, as a tremendous builder of things. He is the one who, I think it was around 15 or 16 B.C., started actually, uh, we might say, enhancing uh, the temple of the Jews right there in Jerusalem and curried a lot of favor with them for doing this. He's a Roman. He's a Roman ruler, okay? Uh, and... Uh, and incredible buildings. Uh, have any of you heard of Masada in uh, the southern part of Israel? 
Uh, he is the builder of Masada, uh, an incredible structure. Uh, Caesarea uh, Maritime, or Caesarea on the coast, is an incredible, uh, incredible amphitheater there that sat about 20,000 people. Um, a a uh, hippodrome uh, where they would have races, uh, and unfortunately later, uh, we think, also persecutions of Christians. Uh, but anyway, that's, that's the, on the positive side, an incredible ruler, very crafty ruler, as we even see in the text here. We'll get to that in a minute. But an uh, incredible builder. I mean, his, his stuff is still standing, uh, much of it today, although some, you know, obviously not in its original pristine condition. Now, on the negative side, the guy was nuts. He was, he was so paranoid... Uh, he killed two of his sons, killed his, his, one of his wives. <clears throat> and remember I told you about Caesarea Maritime on the coast? He killed her because he suspected she uh, was unfaithful to him. Never, to my knowledge, from my reading, never proven. And apparently she was very beautiful. And he had her preserved in a pool of honey so that he can, could continue to see, to behold her beauty after she was dead. Uh, Caesar was reported to have said that it is safer to be Herod's pig than one of his sons. So the guy was just, you know, very, very strange. And there, there is a lot of conjecture about perhaps what he, uh, some type of illnesses that he suffered that made him this way. But uh, you, you did, it, it was not a safe thing to be in his family, and uh, yet he was a guy of incredible accomplishments when it comes to worldly things that we turn around and see uh, even yet today. So, he is the guy who is in power right now, and notice the Magi come from the east. So what country did the Magi come from? We don't know. We don't know. There are, I was reading, there are somewhere between six and nine countries today that want to take credit as the place of origin for the Magi. They want to make that a claim to fame on their part. Now, second thing is, what are Magi? We don't know exactly. One spot that they are very prominent in the Old Testament is in Daniel chapter 2. And some of you may remember that. We're not going to take a look at it now. It's quite a long account. But remember that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And he calls on his own magi to come and interpret, not only to interpret, but first to tell him the dream, what was the dream, and then interpret it for him. And these so-called magi cannot do it. But Daniel, given the the knowledge, the, the wisdom and knowledge from the Lord is able to do it. So we see these guys in Daniel 2 as kind of, you know, these, these guys who interpret dreams or are supposed to be able to interpret dreams. Some link these guys all the way back, if we go back to a similar situation. Remember that with Pharaoh, when God's people were in Egypt and the plagues came, remember Pharaoh calls upon his own magicians to try and replicate those plagues, okay? 
Uh, nowhere in the Old Testament are they depicted as kings. Okay? So again, the, I don't want to, again, I'm trying not to dispel everything, but the, the, the psalm, we three kings of Orient are, well, first of all, we don't know how many there were, and we don't think they were kings, okay? Now, I will say this, that if, if you were in, you take Joseph in Egypt, and you take Daniel in Babylon, because they were so effective at not only providing wisdom and knowledge, they rose in power, but they weren't actually kings, okay? So we don't know exactly what these magi were, okay? And it's kind of interesting that in some ways, and I'm going to read you just a quote. This is a quote from uh, Dr. Jeffrey Gibbs, the commentary on Matthew that Concordia Publishing House put out. Uh, he says, Magi did not worship the God of Israel. They were often servants of rulers who oppressed the people of Israel, and they were in league with a supernatural, uh, supernatural power that opposed the one true God. No one would expect Magi to come in search of the child king, whose birth was prophesied in the Holy Scriptures. Now, the, the thing that I want to point out is that when you look at the ESV, look at the translation there, there really ought to be in there a word like, Behold, Magi from the east came. Or look, Magi from the east came. And it doesn't get translated in in the ESV. I, I should have checked. I think the KJV may have it in there. In other words, these are some of the last guys you might expect to be coming to worship the king. Number one, they're Gentiles. Number two, their history is not with God. It's usually with other nations who are opposed to God. And in the case of Pharaoh and his magicians in the Old Testament, you wonder, you know, they're kind of working with with we might think are, are uh, ungodly powers, you might say, or evil, or kind of like sorcerers, okay? And these guys come, the last guys you'd expect. They're the ones that God draws to see the newborn king. We just wish we knew more about these guys. We wish we knew exactly where they came from, how many there were. You know, it, uh, I, one of the guys I was reading uh, quipped that if Luke had written this, we'd probably know a lot more because Luke carefully researched everything, you know, and was, was very good on the detail. That's not Matthew's intent here, okay? So I'm not being critical of Matthew. But we wish we knew more about these guys. A lot has come to, you know, kind of this lore has, has grown around these guys. You know, there was never any hint of them being kings until about the 6th century when the early church fathers started referring to them as kings, uh, and some of the other church fathers talked about them being wise, there was never any, any you, don't, you just don't find it in Luke's account. Do they look like they know much when they come? Where do they end up going? To Herod and in Jerusalem, not to Bethlehem. And they got a question, where is he? You know, who's born king of the Jews. So, you know, wise men, eh, kings, eh, don't know how many. You know, I, I, it's, just, it's just interesting. Glad I'm not preaching on this next Sunday. So, uh, now, they come and they say to Herod, they came from the east and they asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Now, why, when Herod hears this, why is Herod all upset? Why do you think? 
He, who's, who's the king of the Jews in Herod's mind? He is. That's right. That's right. And uh, again, he has already killed uh, two of his sons because he expected they, he was suspicious that they were going to come and take over his, his kingdom here. So Herod is all upset. Now, if Herod's upset, why is all Jerusalem upset also? Yeah, they don't know what he's going to do. You know, who knows what this guy is going to do? You know, uh, it, it's like uh, if Herod's not happy, nobody's going to be happy, right? And, and we're wondering, what's he going to do? Well, you know, we find out later what he's capable of, don't we? Uh, when he orders all of the male children two years and under in Bethlehem to be killed. That's, that's what he's capable of doing. And that's why all of Jerusalem is upset with him. Notice now, what, what guided these wise men to Jesus, to the newborn king? We saw what? His star. star. There's been a whole lot written about this star. We actually, you know, I would really side with the fact that this was a special, this was not just a naturally occurring solar event. Uh, you'll find all kinds of writings with people trying to match this up with some star that appeared around this time. And the reason for that is later on in verse 9, when these guys get up and go, so does the star and guides them to where Jesus is, you know. So uh, it, it, I think what we can say about these guys is that it appears that they studied astronomy or studied the stars. It, it appears that way, okay, because there is this star that they are following, okay. We saw, notice, his star. It seems like they associated this star with the coming of the Messiah. How did they do that? Well, some think that they went back, that these guys knew about Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. Let me just read it for you. This is a prophecy of Balaam. A star will rise from Jacob, and a man will stand up from Israel, and he will break the princes of Moab, and he will forage all the sons of Seth. So that's one conjecture, that these guys knew about Numbers 24, verse 7, and were looking for the coming of the Messiah. Uh, again, if they're Gentiles, that might be a bit of a stretch to say that. But at any rate, something about this star, and they're connecting to that star with the coming of the Messiah. Okay? So verse 4, when he, Herod, had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, was to be born. So Herod, you know, they don't, these guys, these wise men don't know where he's supposed to be born. So Herod says, let's get all the religious experts together. Surely they will know. All right? And do they know? Yeah. They actually quote back to him, Micah 5, verse 2, which is, the, of course, the prophecy about exactly where the Messiah is to be born. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, Bethlehem, is that where you would expect that the Messiah would be born, if you didn't know this? Where would you expect the Messiah would be born? Where would you expect he would come? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And so, you know, it's not, it's not irrational that these guys show up and are asking, you know, where is he born? They didn't, they didn't go right to Bethlehem. 
Um, so the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, isn't it interesting that these guys knew where the Christ was going to be born, but when they are confronted with the Christ, who was born right there, they reject him. It's kind of interesting, you know? It's kind of the, they knew all the answers, right, in their head. They knew all the prophecies. But when Christ confronts them and they are right in front of him, all they can do is criticize him and eventually crucify him. So it's kind of an irony there. And, you know, there's kind of a, another irony in this text as well when you stop and think about it. There's Herod the Great Powerful, as I was talking about him before, earthly ruler, who is set up with all of his pomp and power. And then you have the one through whom all things were created, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who humbles himself and is born of a virgin there in the humblest of surroundings, right? And you've got Herod, the conniving, untruthful king, and you've got Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. You know, there, there are just contrasts galore uh, in this text. And so, so now they find out it's Bethlehem. These, these uh, magi find out that it's Bethlehem. So then, uh, verse 7, uh, Herod called them and, and secret, uh, secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. So he brings the magi back. He says, well, you know, what, what exact time did you see this star? Okay. So he finds out when the star appeared. And then notice the conniving here. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Well, obviously, what does he want these guys to do? Yeah, tell him where he is. And what's he going to do, come and worship him? Hardly. He's going to come and, and kill him, or have him killed. I'm sure he, he wouldn't bother, but he would, send, he would send soldiers to have him killed. Okay? So, they go, and notice in verse 9, uh, this is what I was saying before, that star, it rose and went ahead of them. It's almost like, you know, what does this harken back to? And you're thinking, the star that leads them. You remember another time, is in the Old Testament, way back, when God led people during the day by a pillar of fire. fire. Yeah, or a pillar of cloud and night, a pillar of fire, right? You get the same idea of God leading these guys, who are not his people, so to speak, they're Gentiles, leading them to the one who is the newborn king. Okay, So it goes ahead of them, and notice it stopped over the place where the child was. Again, this is why I think this is a special star and not some naturally occurring phenomenon. Uh, now, when they, the, the, the Magi, saw the star, they were overjoyed, you know, when they saw it again, on coming to the house. Notice the house. They saw the child with his mother Mary, bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures, presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, a lot has been written also about these three gifts, um, gold and frankincense and myrrh, saying that these gifts represented royalty, priestly things, and the burial to come of Christ. Which gift would be the royal gift? Gold, right? Giving gold to a king, right? 
It's a, it's a kingly kind of gift, okay? So some authors will say, here are the magi recognizing Christ as the king. They give him gold, okay? Um, what would uh, recognize his divinity would be the frankincense, because incense was used particularly in the Old Testament with the prayers of God's people going up before God. So some will say that this frankincense is there recognizing him as being divine. And then the myrrh would be, uh, some would say, preparing him for burial, right? It was used in the, back at that time, they would, and I think in some cases still do this, they would prepare the body with a lot of spices, and myrrh was one of those that they would use. I would say that this all sounds great, but again, there's nothing in the text that would indicate that in the book of Matthew or in other places. So, you know, this, this makes for about three minutes in a sermon. You can talk about all this, uh, but I would say that, you know, again, this is kind of speculation. They were just bringing very valuable gifts uh, to this one whom they knew uh, somehow was being born king of the Jews. I'm personally uncomfortable with going much further than that and suggesting all that they had all this knowledge and they were bringing him gold because they knew he was a king and, uh, and frankincense because they knew he was God and myrrh because they were preparing him for, for burial or they knew he was going to sacrifice. Again, that all sounds great, but I just don't know that we have much to go on to, 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 to uh, conclude that and to, to make that a definitive statement. Miles. Yes. Yes, uh, Miles, uh, the point Miles made was, notice at the very end here, we're just about to get to this, they were warned in what? A dream. So God protects them in this dream and tells them not to go back. So he didn't leave it to chance with a star at this point. He tells them directly in a dream, warns them in a dream, not to go back. Why? Because Herod would do what? Not only would he find out from them, try to find out from them, probably would, where the child is, but they would be killed as well, wouldn't they? And so, now, why does God want them to get back safely? Because what are they going to, what are these magi going to do when they get back? Yeah, they're going to tell everybody what they experienced. We wish, again, we wish we knew there are all kinds of legends about where they went and what happened and so on, but I think it's safe to say that when they go back, they are not going to be silent about this. They are going to be telling everyone what they have seen and heard and how they did worship. You know, we can't mistake the fact that here we have Gentiles falling down and worshiping Christ. Now, let me ask you this is was it, was it always God's plan to save not only Jews but Gentiles as well? Or was this something sort of new on the scene? Did this just start with, with uh, Epiphany? Was, or was it, did it go back further than that? Way back it went. Way back it went. Uh, remember that when God calls Abraham, way back in Genesis chapter 12, not only does he tell him, you know, and this is repeated in, in seven, Genesis 17 and 21, 
Not only does God tell them, I'm going to make of you a great people, a great nation, that your, your descendants will be more than the uh, sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky, but by your offspring, what? All the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, how is that if it's not through Christ, right? And all the way through, when, when uh, the temple is dedicated and Solomon is praying in the prayer of dedication, he says, when the nations come and offer prayers to you, hear their prayers. Um, uh, Simeon, we just today, in, in, our, in our church services, had the nunc diminis, the Lord, now let your servant depart in peace, a light to the na Gentiles, the nations, yeah. This has always been God's plan. It's not, he is not the savior of a little niche of humanity, but of all, all the nations. And so we see here in Epiphany, this becoming known. The fact that he is the savior of all people, not just a select group of people, okay? So that's really the, the heart and gist we might say, of Epiphany. Now, before we move on, let me ask, are there any questions, any, any comments on this? Huh? Maybe we don't know this either, but was the star only visible to the Magi, or could anyone Okay, the question was, was the star only visible to the Magi, or could other people see it as well? I've got to say, the only thing I guess we can conclude from the text is it seems obviously the Magi could see it, but Matthew doesn't really comment on other people being able to see it. So, yeah. I'm kind of a boring guy. I always like to stop where the Bible stops and not go any further and conjecture beyond that. You know, I, I know that's not doesn't make for great flowery uh, stories, but the thing is, we just don't have a whole lot more. Uh, the Magi could definitely see it. That we know. Don. Yeah. Yeah, Don makes the point, it seems like the star led them sort of in a general way, and they end up in front of Herod, <laughs> not the right place. And, you know, in verse 9, I don't know if you caught this uh, kind of feeling that I certainly did as well. It's almost like the star had been gone for a little while. And, like, maybe it, maybe it led them to the general, you know, and then they had, it seems like they had a hunt around, you know. The star did not lead them directly, you know, you're thinking... Well, if God was going to do this, why didn't he just have the star do it immediately, what it did in verse 9, right? And it seems like he wanted them to go through this process, and somehow, you know, in that process, he allowed Herod to find out that there is someone born who's reported to be the king of the Jews. So it kind of, kind of puts Herod on notice. And, you know, so again, this goes into all these why did God do it this way sort of things. But in verse 9, it says, it almost makes it seem like the star appeared again, and they were, they were happy because they saw the star again. It almost makes it seem like for a while they weren't seeing that star, you know? So as Don was saying, maybe it led them to the land, and then maybe they didn't see it and had to start asking around, where is this one who was born king of the Jews? And then right after they leave Herod, and they were informed that it's going to be Bethlehem, then the star appears again and leads them right to, right to where Christ is. People have conjectured, well, high up, how high up was this star? I don't know. Matthew doesn't tell us. You know, so, so did it come right over the house so that they couldn't miss it? Kind of seems that way, but the star, you know. So again, we just don't know. But 
It's, it, all it's safe to say is God used this as his means of guiding these Gentiles to the Savior. Okay? What does God use to guide us to the, gen, to, uh, the Savior? We have any stars out there we're following? The Word of God. Baptism, it's water and word for most of us, I think, in this room this morning. Water and word. And, and faithful parents who bring us to that water and word where God works uh, and creates faith and washes away sin and makes us heirs of everlasting life. And instead of a star throughout our lives, he continues with his word and sacrament, doesn't he? Not just to guide us to a Savior, but to be that Savior in our midst. Uh, as Pastor Smith was emphasizing in the sermon this morning, right here in our midst. Uh, tangible, touchable, tasteable, right here in our midst. No longer are we led by a star, we're led by the Savior himself, okay, and in his word. Okay? Anything else before we move on? Yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the comment was not only use God using a star here, but God using unbelievers and actually converting them to believers in the case of the Magi, seeing the isn't it interesting? They just see the Christ. You wonder what else did did Mary and Joseph tell them anything, you know? There's all kinds of things you wonder. You know, there's all these questions we get asked. On, on the last day when we finally uh, see him face to face, right? All these questions, like where did these guys come from? How many were there? Did Mary and Joseph tell him anything? Uh, what about this star? You know, there are just so many questions like that that we just don't know. We'll just have to be content not to know. We don't have to know, but it's just curious, curiosity that, that makes us want to know. Okay, anything else? All right, now let's go back to the Old Testament real quickly. We've only, not have all that much time. Um, Isaiah 60. Now, this is the Old Testament prophecy, one of them, that is matched up with the gospel account that we just read. Now, Isaiah 60 is going to be all about light and uh, 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 kings uh, coming uh, in verse 3. And uh, notice that what happened right before this where were God's people when they were being addressed by especially this part of Isaiah? Were they all at home and happy and all comfy in, uh, in uh, Israel? They were off where? Babylon, in captivity. They would read this when they're in captivity in Babylon, okay? And those of you that have a Bible uh, with you, let's just turn back. I want to just show you that right before this, in Isaiah 59... It is anything but light and rejoicing and happiness. You kind of get the idea. You, you see their captivity. Um, if you look, let's look at, uh, let's see, Isaiah 59. Yeah, let's look at verses 9 and 10. Therefore... Justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon, as in the twilight, among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. 
Not too hopeful, is it? It's like they're walking, it's like they're groping. You know how it is when you, you get up at night, <clears throat> maybe your nightlight isn't working, and, and you're, you're feeling the walls to try and find out where you are? That's almost the picture we get here. God's people are lost, they're in darkness, they're groping, they're, they're uh, um, stumbling around. And so that's the vision, that's the picture we get in 59. And this is kind of a picture of their, of their captivity. But notice right at the end of chapter 59, uh, starting at verse 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. In other words, those who repent, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. So a redeemer is going to come. And then now we launch into chapter 60. And notice how it begins. Arise, shine, for your light has come. Notice that? The contrast. They were in darkness. They were groping in darkness. Now it's arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Verse 2. See, darkness covers the earth, uh, and it, you know, sort of um, uh, all people in this, in this darkness, and Thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. And then notice verse 3, nations will come to your light, and who? Kings to the brightness of your dawn. And many think that it's this prophecy, and verse 3 in particular, that brought around the 6th century... The church fathers talking about these magi as being kings. Because it says here, kings will come to the brightness of your dawn. Verse 4, lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar and your daughters are carried on the hip. So, Notice this is talking, who, who is this talking about? Is this talking about Gentiles or about Jews here? All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar and your daughters are carried on the hip. Your sons and your daughters would be not, no, not, not, not Gentiles, but their own, the Jews. So this, on the one hand, is going to be they're coming back from their captivity. And what kind of picture do you get about the daughters being carried on the hip? It's going to be a... Happy time, right? Uh, carrying the daughters on the hip, going to be coming back home once again. Uh, then, verse 5, then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. Now, notice here, the wealth on the seas will be brought to you, and the riches of the nations will come. Well, where in the story of the Magi do we get the wealth of the nations coming? They brought what? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? Uh, verse 6, herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephah. Uh, camels being a symbol, I guess they still are in the Middle East, a symbol of wealth also. 
And we won't take a look at it now, but if you want to, if those of you who are writing something down, Judges 6, the camels of Midian were used against God's people. Now they're going to be brought to God's people. In other words, God's enemies are going to be serving him. And then, uh, and all from Sheba will come, bearing what? Gold and incense, and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. Guess where Sheba is? We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. Um, you may have heard of the historian Josephus. He says it's Ethiopia in, in northern Africa. Uh, there are, again, a bunch of different speculations about where Sheba was. But at least in this, you have got a prophecy of the wealth of the nations coming, even down to gold and incense coming, and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. So as we've said other times in this class, there is a partial fulfillment of this when God's people are brought back from their captivity and God brings them back home and they do become, a, for at least a time, a great nation once again, not as great certainly as they were, but ultimately this is fulfilled in Christ when the nations come and bring gold and incense, okay? All right. Let's stop. I won't go into We've got more I can say on this, but time-wise, we're a little short. Any comments or questions before we move on to the epistle lesson on this Old Testament? Miles? Ah. That's an interesting question. Miles asked the question, what would Mary and Joseph have done with those gifts, and would that have been enough to support them for some time? That's a great question. I really, I mean, again, we're not told. I hate to keep falling back on that. And it's interesting that when Mary and Joseph come, this is in uh, today's gospel lesson, when they come to offer uh, the presentation of the Lord, they are, make, they are taking advantage of the offering for the poor that the poor could give, uh, the lesser offering, uh, the doves. They, they are, so that's kind of, that's an interesting point. So if they had all this gold, why would they make the offering or take advantage of the offering that the poor could give? Does that suggest that this is after, probably is, after the 40 days? Probably so. So maybe that's a good point. Maybe we can even narrow this down a little bit further, that this is maybe even beyond 40 days from his birth. That's probably the way I would go, because you're right. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah, Lois was saying that they maybe lived on that when they had to flee to Egypt. That's, that's another good point. That's another good point. God, in a way, using these magi to provide what they're going to need to live on when they're, when they're in Egypt. Talk about uh, give us this day our daily bread. Huh? God does it just as he does today, right? God uses unbelievers to provide our daily bread for us, doesn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Joseph continued to be a carpenter. Yeah, yeah, the tradition is that Joseph continued to be a carpenter. In other words, he wasn't rich and, you know, uh, um, sitting back uh, in a lap of luxury, at least as far as, again, that's tradition outside of Scripture, but that seems to be fairly well established. Yes?
Yes. Yes. That's another good point. Yeah, in Matthew, did you, in the Matthew account, did you see anything about camels? No. So, yes. Uh, this, what has happened is this prophecy, which I would, I'm comfortable with this being a prophecy of the Magi coming and the, and the gold and the incense coming, but sometimes uh, I think in Christian tradition, the church fathers have taken this and, set, and kind of added it as if it were stated in Matthew, and it's really not. You know, they, and they probably had camp, maybe they had camels, maybe not. Yeah, but you're right. This is, and this definitely, verse 6, is definitely where the idea that they were kings came from, from this prophecy. All right? All right, now we better move on. We've got just about 10 minutes left. Let's go to the epistle lesson, which also matches up. And Paul is writing to Christians in Ephesus. Now, let's stop and step back for a moment. If epiphany means to make known. How did God make it known to Paul, who was Saul, that Jesus is in fact the Christ and not an imposter? On the road to Damascus, right? When the risen Christ himself appeared to Paul and made known to him that he is in fact the Savior, right? Complete 180. Paul or Saul at that point uh, in his life. He's, he's going to Damascus to arrest Christians and bring them back to be put on trial, religious trial, and the risen Christ makes himself known to Paul. Now, let's just, we won't read the whole thing, let's just go through this and kind of uh, take it apart here. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. This is one of Paul's what we call prison epistles, okay? Uh, we think this was written when he was in his two-year house arrest in Rome. You see Acts 28 is uh, where that took place. But he is the prisoner of Christ Jesus for whose sake? The sake of the Gentiles. So see how this is coming together, that Paul was given a mission. When you stop and think this is kind of ironic, what is Paul by birth and by his upbringing and by his training and everything? He is, is he a Gentile? Just the opposite. A Pharisee of Pharisees, he says. Uh, advancing well beyond his peers when he recounts his past. So it is, what, what an irony that God selects Paul to go to Gentiles, right? So, and in Ephesus, you had Jews and Gentiles together in the church. And uh, verse 2, surely you have heard, this is kind of a rhetorical device here, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me, notice there, for you. In other words, God's handling of his grace, his undeserved, unmerited love was given to me, for you. In other words, you're going to have benefit from this, you Gentiles. That is the mystery. Now, whenever Paul talks about mystery, 99 out of 100 times, what he's talking about about the mystery is that Jesus Christ is the Savior. In this case, that he's the Savior of Gentiles also. Not just Jews, but Gentiles also. But whenever Paul talks about the mystery, it's usually the mystery of Christ Jesus. Why is it a mystery? We can't, can we know this on our own? No, it has to be revealed. It has to be made known. 
It has to be epiphanied to us, right? That he is the Savior. So Paul is saying this mystery that was made known, that was epiphanied, okay? To me, by revelation, again, Acts 9, when Christ appears to him on the road to Damascus, as I have already written briefly. Did Paul write something else to the Ephesians before this letter? Kind of sounds like it, doesn't it? Oh, unless he's referring to another letter. Uh, we know that we don't have everything that Paul wrote to the Corinthians because in 1 Corinthians 5, I think it's verse 9, Paul talks about a previous letter that he wrote. Well, if that's 1 Corinthians, that means it's really at least 2 Corinthians, <laughs> not 1. So, again, we don't have everything that Paul wrote. We have what God intended us and wants us to have. Verse 4, in reading this then, this the public reading of this scripture, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Again, that Christ is the Savior of all. Verse 5, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Um, Paul is saying this wasn't as widely known in the past, but now it's being made known through the apostles and prophets according to the Spirit's work. Verse 6, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Notice that language there, those phrases he uses in verse 6, that the Gentiles are heirs together, members together, and sharers together. What's he trying to say to the Jews in Ephesus? The Gentiles are what? They are just as much an heir as you are. Now, how would, by nature, how would a Jew react to something like that? That the Gentiles are heirs of God with them. Not well. Not well. Yeah. Yeah. And this is what, this was the huge problem in the early church that they had to get past. The idea that, the, that Gentiles are also saved. That they also are heirs with them of this promise. Okay? And so Paul is trying to drive that home. Finishing up here. I became, verse 7, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me. Notice there, there's a double, grace means uh, it's, it's an undeserved, unmerited love, and that was given me through the working of his power. The least of all the Lord's people. Why would Paul say, I'm the least of all the Lord's people? He was a persecutor. He knows he didn't deserve this. In fact, he, he probably thinks to himself, I deserve to be stricken dead because of what I was doing to the mission of God formerly. So I am the least of the Lord's people. This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless, the unlimited riches of Christ and to make plain Notice there again, to epiphany, to make known, to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, again, that's Christ, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. Notice verse 10, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known 
to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his, notice this isn't a new purpose, his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. This would be a great text to preach on for Epiphany. This making known to the Gentiles. And, you know, we have to remember we are the Gentiles, right? That, that God has, by his grace, made this known to us. And uh, now, just one last comment. Uh, how does God make this known today? Verse 10, through the church. Did you catch that? Through the church. That is our mission. Our mission is to make known to Epiphany Christ to the world, right? Uh, and that's why um, we here at St. Paul's, and I think it's safe to say throughout the Missouri Synod, uh, don't preach about politics or economics or morals or um, how to be more successful uh, in your business. Uh, that's, not our, that's not our mission. And frankly, most people out there probably know more about it than I do. But our mission is to preach Christ, and that's it. So that's what we do, to make him known in word and sacrament. All right? I think that's a good place to end. Let's close then with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.